podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, I join you this morning, like I have so many in the past, from a random hotel room on the road. I'm heading back to Austin, Texas this morning, but first, I want to share this interview with you guys. Just a few themes I want to flag up. Uh, Today's show is going to be about community and a person who's played a big role in ours, the Dynamite Circle. And that community all started when we came on this podcast every week many, many years ago and shared a remote first journey, a lifestyle business journey around an e-commerce business. And it turned out there was so many others who shared our values in that journey. And that's been incredibly assuring and affirming. It's awesome to not have to explain what you do all the time. That's why I love community. But there was like a dual purpose in having today's guest on, which is another theme You know, we're exploring this year on the pod, which is how do you do remote first, bootstrapped, but also put yourself on the path for generational wealth. How do you build an eight-figure business? How do you create an exit that would, as Jason Cohen says, shelve financial questions for a lifetime? So that's one of the themes that's going to be underlying the pod this year. Just wanted to point that out. Now, we originally built the Dynamite Circle Forum back in 2011 on the platform Ning, which had a lot of pros and cons, but at the time, there was very little choice. So I've been super interested over the years to watch this sort of community software space. And last year, today's guest, former Ning CEO Gina Bianchini founded Mighty Networks with a team of 24. And last year, they had incredible growth. That's up to 100 now, and they have 10,000 paying members on top of those who are using their freemium offerings. So definitely, we've got a serious business on our hands here. Some of the things that Gina and I get in today really go to the core of what it's like to, to run and create a network, many of which we face in our own forum, and the temptation to overestimate the lure of bigger platforms like Facebook. So I started out by asking Gina to describe who Mighty Networks is aimed at. So our customer is a creator, they're a coach, they're a brand that wants to build a new kind of online business that's powered by community. And specifically community that a community that gets more valuable to every member with each new person who joins and contributes. The way that our product works is this ability to create online courses to run paid memberships, organize events, all in one place, all under your brand, instantly available on every platform, but that that community is built into everything. Now, in, you live in Palo Alto, so it's kind of famous to say, like, it's like this, but like this, or you do the XY comparisons to something. So you might hate me for this one, but is Mighty Networks like a private Facebook that you can control and own? The thing you said that makes me very happy is it's your own Facebook. It's not your own Facebook group. And the reason it's your own Facebook is actually because your members can have, whether it's courses or whether it's groups, they they actually can bring all of those things together 
in your Mighty Network's main feed. So it becomes really personalized, which means that it's really scalable and everybody can have the most relevant experience to them. We're not trying to, you know, have a discovery platform. We're not trying to be the brand. We really look at our analogy or or comparables as what Shopify has done for e-commerce. We want to do for digital subscriptions and the things that you would actually pay for and using that for engagement, whether that's, again, community online courses or memberships. I want to walk through your timeline a little bit here in a moment, but one of the things that I think is really powerful about these platforms is when I saw the Ning feature set in 2011, like within six months, it allowed me to turn this podcast into a six-figure business. I've explored Mighty as well. I'm curious, like, what are you seeing like the customers that get the most value instantly out of it? Like, who can go to Mighty Networks and like sort of start a business? What is that kind of class of customers for you guys that are getting this sort of enormous benefit right away? Very simply, you know, people that are starting from scratch, like it turns out we're a really good platform. If you are building your first online course or you're building your first membership subscription, we're also have been a great platform for people moving a free group to a mighty network where they still want to have a freemium model. So the community or front door is free, but then there are paid programs, whether that's again, online courses or, or, you know, weekly events. The fact that you can quickly set up a freemium website, essentially with payments built in with the different features that you would want to bundle together to create an offering around a paid subscription or a paid purchase. You know, again, a great example would be Yoga with Adrian. Great YouTube channel also has a video streaming app that they that they sell as a subscription. And then their community that really supports their business is on Mighty Networks, and it's called Find What Feels Good Kula. They have over 200,000 members. They actually moved over to a Mighty Network from a 25,000-person Facebook group uh, about three years ago. And they grew from there. They grew from there. How's that so? You'd think with Facebook is the, like the growth option and then Mighty's like the kind of paid specific option. What they actually found was the Facebook experience was so toxic because the idea that you are getting out of the sort of social media train where it's, you know, it's outrage followed by your family, followed by like what you're doing in terms of, you know, your yoga practice. The way Sarah Bowman describes it uh, is that people were showing up hot on Facebook. When you are having all of this kind of outrage presented to you in your feed, and there's no control over, you know, where and how you see someone's group, that the level of vitriol over a topic like yoga can just get out of control. (laughs) And so when you actually create your own community on your own destination, you see a different culture emerge that just isn't what happens on a Facebook group. Could you bring us back to like to help us to relate to your story right now? Because you know, you're speaking very confidently, you're running this big, fancy, successful company. 
if you were to challenge me and say, hey, go build a business like Ning right now, I'd be like, well, that's pretty challenging. But you did it like back in the early 2000s. So tell me, like, how did you arrive at that moment where you had that vision, the ambition and the resources to build a company like Ning? So I had the resources and ambition before we had the vision, I would say. So the, the initial idea for Ning was let's go create a programmable platform for social applications the way that the web and HTML is a programmable platform for websites, you know, or the browser is a programmable platform for websites. The interesting thing was that after about a year, we saw that the real opportunity wasn't with developers. It was certainly meant to be a low code platform in today's parlance, but actually it was, oh, wait a second. Like there's all these people out there that don't know how to code and want to build their own social network for anything. And we had started Ning where, you know, you had different primitives that you could pull together. And then there was like, the idea was that you could have a photo website or a video website or a wiki website or a blog website. And what we found was that people didn't want individual features. They wanted to bring them all together. That actually speaks to how early stage it was in terms of the development of social applications. It was even like you had like a Twitter feed, more or less, like the activity feed that would give you a running tally of everything that was happening, like amongst all the applications you had pulled together. And in fact, this is like something that still exists in our community today because like our community was so passionate about that feature in Ning that we had to like hard code it into our new solution. So it's like funny how things have like a sort of a, resonance like that over time. Well, and that was certainly what we built as the second version of of Ning. So the first version was this programmable platform. And then the second version was actually just drag and drop these things into a solution, into your own social network for anything. And then as you mentioned, Dan, like you can have an activity feed of all of the different things that are happening across your Ning network. Today's episode is brought to you by Pricing.com, a competitor price tracking and dynamic pricing software that helps all sizes of e-commerce companies make fast and effective pricing decisions. We all know that at the moment, it's ultra competitive out there in e-commerce land, and it's making it more difficult to get those fat profit margins. Pricing allows you to monitor your competitors' prices on a single dashboard. This means you can detect each price change and seize every opportunity to improve profitability. You can also set up dynamic pricing rules, allowing you to automatically match or beat any competitor's price without spending a minute thinking about it. As a revenue management software, Pricing allows online sellers of all sizes to grow fast and profitably with data-driven pricing decisions. If you want to compete with the retail giants without bleeding money, check out Pricing.com solutions designed to help you thrive on a tiny budget. What's more, they're offering TMBA listeners a huge 50% discount for the first three months. That's an amazing deal. Go check it out at Pricing.com. That's P-R-I-S-Y-N-C. And many thanks to Pricing for sponsoring the show. And so you guys were like pretty prescient about the future at that company. What ended up happening with Ning? I remember like I was using it. I was like a power user. So 
it felt like drama in the tech press about Ning, like generally speaking, like it was something worth talking about. What was what was the experience like there for you and and running that company? And, and how did you eventually exit the company? When I look at and think about Ning, I think that the main takeaway was, for me at least, it was these are amazing people to serve. The Ning creator, and we called Ning creators, creators back in 2007. And the second thing is, you know, we thought Ning would be an advertising-based business. We did not think that it was about subscriptions or, you know, running a SaaS company. And yet what was interesting is we had sort of this throwaway you could pay us like $36 a month and we like like you could remove the Ning branding. Yet we had very big customers who were using Ning in some very, very interesting ways. And so when I left Ning, it was really, you know, in the spirit of, okay, I want to continue serving this customer. I want to create a SaaS business and it needs to be mobile first. And what was fantastic is that I have been able and we have been able with our team at Mighty to continue that same vision of Ning, but take it into, there is no better time to take full advantage of not just technology, but also just how culture has evolved and and developed. There are certainly dark and negative aspects of social media that I think have been yeah let me ask you about that you mentioned that facebook is gaslighting us you you said this publicly recently you said facebook is gaslighting us what do you mean by that yeah so that was actually i wrote that piece about two years ago maybe it was even three years ago like time in our post-covid world has (laughs) merged i agree so my i'm like i don't even like it's like it's still march of 2020 So basically what was happening at that point in time was that this was like after the 2016 election and Facebook came out and they were basically like, we're going to be all about groups and it's all about meaningful communities and we can't wait to do this. And this is amazing. And everybody should have groups. Now, here's the thing that I watched when Facebook first came out, the story that they told brands, for example, was, hey, everybody, come and create a page on Facebook and get people to your Facebook page. So that was when you started to see brands say, follow us on Facebook or or like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. But the promise at that point in time was that you would get a like and then that person would be someone that you could talk to and the brand could send them messages or, you know, show up in their feed or their page was going to have, basically everybody was going to essentially have a branded website on Facebook. So then what Facebook said is actually we're going to change the rules. So I know that you've just been spending literally hundreds of millions of dollars telling everyone to like you on Facebook you are trying to move more and more of your efforts to Facebook versus, you know, at the time, creating your own communities or your own social network. Everybody's on Facebook. We have to be where everybody is. And then what happened was 
Facebook changed the rules again and said, we're going to stop sending people to your Facebook page. Yes. And you are going to pay to reach all of those people that we told you before, you only had to pay to get to your page once, and then you could organically reach them. Well, guess what? You now have to pay us to reach those people. And the brands were almost like, uh, like we're already in this thing. Like, I'm going to look like an idiot if I just say I don't believe in Facebook, even though they've actually changed the rules and I'm renting this audience and I don't own any of it. So my only point with this piece was, you know, one, I had a, a strong bet that the moment of Facebook groups in terms of Facebook really investing in them was more PR and marketing than product. And I was right. That's important for your customers too. You understand your customers. Cause for me, like I was really scared of Facebook groups there for a couple of years. Like they're going to destroy my business because they're better. Did they? No, <laughs> no, but you're not the only one. I think there, there were a lot of people that were like, you know, if Facebook and even today, you know, Facebook is like, says anything and people are like, oh my gosh, I guess they're going to own X, Y, or Z market. It's like people give large companies a lot of credit and sometimes more than they necessarily deserve. The bigger point is, so no product changes happened with Facebook groups. They actually disbanded like a dedicated Facebook groups organization within Facebook. The second thing is, if you think about how Facebook works, like, the group organizers are actually just brands 10 years later, meaning, okay, so you invest in your Facebook group and you're making you know, all of these things and you're trying to do it on Facebook. One, Facebook markets competitive groups to your members. And that's, by the way, if you even get somebody to your Facebook group page, for the most part, it's whatever randomly shows up in the feed, which means that the relationship that you're building with your members or the members are building between each other is happening in three second chunks in their newsfeed with no control by the host, by the group admin. It's the equivalent on some level of trying to do a offsite or like go to like a, a retreat in the middle of Times Square. Like it doesn't work that way. I think you know that in this case, the medium is the message in the sense that like I consider them our community, we call it like a slow community. Like we reward people for producing long form content and things that we set the expectations with our members. Like, hey, if you write a piece, important people will read it. They'll change their lives. They'll meet with you in a few months about it and tell you what happened. But they might not put a heart on it. We're not going to let it become that. And I think the past 10 years on the internet, we've just like uh, assumed that this is like the way reality is. What is actually the way like five companies in Silicon Valley are? That's something I always try to keep in mind as we run our community, like to keep in mind the real people behind the profiles. Yeah, it's well said. You know, you mentioned like Facebook gets people hot and toxic and I agree with that. But I still like our team does a lot of moderation and we had a topic last week that like got completely out of hand. It was to do with cryptocurrencies and people got really like angry with each other and they got mean. I mean, it's so interesting to see how in communities it like it's the two sides of the sword. Like they make you feel so empowered and so positive and like they change your life, but they can make you feel terrible too. If it's you have to come to the realization that maybe you don't share values with somebody or they treated you poorly. 
I'm wondering how you guys think through that. I'm sure like I have a few gray hairs because of managing a community over 10 years. I got very comfortable with, I'm going to run communities that aren't going to be for everybody. Mighty Networks as a platform is not for everybody. <laughs> and that's okay. The ways or assumptions that kind of steer people wrong or create that pain in community design is one where it's like, oh my gosh, I need to make everybody happy. It's like having a guest at my house and I need to make them feel super welcome, even if they're a jerk. If they were at your house and they're like mean to your other guests, you would probably be like, I think you actually have to leave. <laughs> and yet it, there's this expectation in online communities that it's like, that's okay. It's not okay. The second thing is that any topic is okay. Meaning like if people want to show up and start talking about something super controversial, they should be allowed to do that. And if you're like, no, you can't do that here. They'll say that's censorship. Sadly, if you think about what Facebook has become over the last 10 years, and it's not the last you know five minutes, it's over the last 10 years, it has become a infinite series of A-B tests around language that is being tested to be as divisive as possible the use of arguments and language to divide people and to, to exploit tribalism. And it is a decision that any of us make as community designers to say, you know what? There are plenty of places on the internet where if you want to go have a conversation that is super controversial to go, like go to those places. That's not what we're doing here. And again, with whatever people throw at you, you're, you're censoring me. This is about free speech. We are all private enterprises. The place where free speech is protected is censorship by the government, not by private enterprises and private communities or even public communities. And the other thing is that there is a silent majority. Like for everybody who is taking extreme positions and just playing out the same, it's the same narrative. And it's been, it's been maximally precise and maximally designed to divide us. And then a lot of the, the members of our communities, they're learning this stuff. It's bad faith acting by them. They just want, they're trying to get attention or work out their anxieties in public. Exactly. And so, for example, you know, and, and the weaponization, it's like anyone in five minutes or five seconds can go find 75 memes to throw into a conversation. It's the equivalent of a verbal or written DDoS attack, you know, a yeah. denial of service, because they're not going to let anybody talk and they're just going to like flood the conversation and flood the thread. If we are participating in a weaponized conversation where we're just parroting what's out there that has that we don't even know where the arguments have come from and that is distracting us and tearing people down and I keep coming back to is this a conversation that is going to help each and every one of our members which by the way we're also really clear what are the community we run at for Mighty House yeah. What is it for and what is it not for? You know what it's not for? It's not for self-promotion. Yeah. It's not for a lot of political discussions. It's not for you getting heard. 
that's where a community is its strongest is when it can focus on helping the members get the objective they're there for, which is so rare in today's society because yeah. you are bombarded by things all the time. I got two more for you. Um, and I appreciate your time here. Today. I know you're very busy, but uh, there's two parts of our audience. We're all remote first. About 80% of us are business owners and 20% of us are aspiring business owners and remote workers. So I'll start with the business owners. You know, one of my goals is to reach my full potential as an entrepreneur and I've always sort of been stuck in the low seven figures. I've always built like these businesses that are, you know, had a really nice team of 10 and we're, we're productive and it's cool and stuff, but we've never really gotten to that point where we broke through and got on the radar in our industry or anything like that. And there's a lot of us like that that listen to this show and you've managed to do that. So I'm just curious, like, what are some general principles or points, advice you'd have for us on how we could progress to get to that like next level of entrepreneurship? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, on some level, the entrepreneurs that I have the most respect for are the ones that have built their own businesses. There is so much like in terms of Silicon Valley businesses and, and the particular game of growth equity and tech entrepreneurship that are like kind of horrible, <laughs> like, like not that cool. <laughs> like, <laughs> like what? Any number of different things in terms of in terms of the game, but here's what I would say is for any business, whether you're in the six figures, seven figures, eight figures, it's about looking at what is it that I do, what is the value people are getting from it, and what are the different ways that we can scale it. And the good news today is that you can scale with no code or, you know, by just putting in your credit card with, you know, platforms like Mighty and others in ways that were not possible even two years ago. I personally think that one of the most important things is just continuing those practices as the entrepreneur of like, what did I learn this week? What are the three or four things that come out of that learning? And how do I bring this into to my next week? One final question for those looking to make a lot of people want to emulate what you've done with your career. <laughs> I would say think twice about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the hardest thing is like getting from, you know, having a job to like getting a business off the ground that can sustain, you know, you can own your own time back. What are some of your favorite ways that you've seen or you've done yourself, you know, entrepreneurs getting to the point where they can afford their own time and work on their own projects? Well, so I think the number one thing I see and I was always pretty good at this and have become even more so. I think people do a lot of things because they think they should. And I've certainly been guilty of that. If anything, because of COVID, we are all hitting the reset button. And we get to move forward by saying, you know what? Like, I don't have to go to that thing. And if somebody sends me an email and they want to talk to me, I don't have to. How do I get much more disciplined about this is my purpose? This is where I get energy. This is the stuff that is a distraction. And anytime it's like, well, I should. Well, I should post more to social media and I should have a big audience on social media. Or I should take that call. They might turn into a new customer. Or I should go to this party or, you know, dinner in like, or networking event or all this other stuff that it's like in the past, it was like, oh my gosh. And because we all basically got 
our calendars wiped clean, each and every one of us can build back with the things that bring us energy and figure out a way to get out of the things that we think we should do that we don't really have to do. And I think that that is very difficult for people. But I just think about how much more productive I am today with so many of those distractions gone. And to me, that is, that is just invaluable. I love that answer. And that was the toughest part for me, for sure, is like you're bound into responsibilities and social connections that you have to break in a way that was meaningful to me at the time, but now feels more natural. Yeah. Gina, we really appreciate you taking the time to stop by the podcast today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Big shout out to Gina for coming by the show. Of course, you can find out more about what she's up to over at Mighty Networks. I'd love to hear your experience of running or creating networks. Drop me an email, dan at tropicalmba.com. Also, let me shout out our sponsor this week, pricing.com. Huge thanks to them for making this show possible. I've been thinking a lot about community lately over at the Dynamite Circle. Uh, We've had a lot of moderation issues during COVID and just rethinking that charter of ethics. I, I thought Gina's approach to moderation was super refreshing, not one I've shared over the years. And she's just a boss. She has a very strong vision for what can and can't be said. And that's something we're working on at the DC because we've been largely a virtual community during COVID times. And honestly, that wasn't ever the charter of our community. And it's a necessary challenge for us to take on as things you know, went more virtual during the pandemic. And I think it was, it's a good prompt for us to improve that virtual side of the community. And it's turned out well. We've actually had a net positive membership during the COVID times, even though the charter of our community has always been in-person events, something I'm just so very happy that we're going to get back to here over the summer and in October. In fact, I'm going to meet a few members just this weekend. So I'll just leave you with this thought is whether you just want to make a good living from your lifestyle business or whether you want to join Ian and I on this journey of trying to create an eight-figure lifestyle business, I think finding your people, finding people that are sharing in that journey, being able to regularly you know, meet them, run ideas by them, get critical feedback from them is basically the biggest business hack I know about. <laughs> We're over 600 episodes now. And that's basically it. Like embed yourself with people on the journey you're on and just be around them, earn their trust, earn their friendship, and build with transparency in their direction. Good things are going to happen. Speaking of good things happening, next week, Bossman returns to the show and we're going to share some of the nitty gritty details of our hopefully eight figure business journey. We shall see. Join us for that. Thanks for joining us this week. We'll be back next Thursday morning, as always. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.